Quick note that the following episode of Canada Land may contain subject matter and language that some people will find offensive. Patrick Brown is out of the Conservative Party's leadership race. Ian Brody says the party learned of, quote, serious allegations of wrongdoing by Brown's campaign. Patrick Brown said this disqualification or attempt to disqualify reveals what he calls political corruption. Our campaign hasn't done anything wrong. If there was anything that was not consistent with the Canadian Elections Act, we would immediately address it. But you can't respond to an anonymous allegation. Well, now... The whistleblower has released a public statement. Her name is Debbie Jo Duane. So what the hell just happened? I don't know, maybe the same old, same old. Maybe a dirty politician got caught breaking the rules. Or maybe a politician got stabbed in the back by his rivals. Or maybe both at the same time, you know, in which case, what else is new? Maybe what just happened with Patrick Brown and the leadership race for the federal conservatives is nothing shocking. Or maybe that jaded shrug actually gives cover to a much more serious situation. And, and follow me on this for a minute. Canadians do not vote governments in, they vote governments out. That is a cliche because it's true. For example, back in 2018, it is very likely that Ontarians were so eager to vote the Liberals and Kathleen Wynne out that whoever happened to be leading the Conservatives at that time was just going to be Premier. In which case... The decision about who would govern Ontario was not made by voters, but by the Ontario PC party when they chose Doug Ford, following Patrick Brown's first spectacular flameout. Patrick Brown is now out as the leader of the province's progressive conservative party, the official opposition, and out over allegations of sexual misconduct by two women. A couple hours ago, I learned about troubling allegations about my conduct and character. And I'm here tonight to address them. And we still don't know who was behind that. Here's another example. Uh, now, Canada is headed into a recession. Trudeau's liberals are looking tired and tarnished. Historically, these are exactly the circumstances under which Canadians toss whoever happens to be in power out and elect in whoever happens to be leading that other party. In which case, the answer to my question, what the hell just happened, is that what just happened is the Conservative Party of Canada just elected Pierre Polyev our next prime minister. That's a hypothesis. That is a possibility. But what do I know about conservatives? Viewed from a distance, internal Conservative Party politics looks like a shady basket of snakes, uh, stabby snakes, snakes that can somehow stab each other. This week... On this show, in the wake of Patrick Brown's most recent flameout, we're going to cautiously lift the lid on that basket and, and shine a light on the writhing pile of snakes and, and try to understand these snakes. Where do they get all the knives? How does a snake even hold a knife? That kind of thing. And to do that, I need to talk to somebody who actually knows real live conservatives and might even be one. Journalist Jen Gerson, founder of The Line, a Substack and podcast that is well worth your time, joins me from Calgary in a moment. Wait for it.
Hi, Jen. Hey, Jesse. Jen, did the Conservative Party of Canada just privately decide that Pierre Polyev is our next prime minister? Oh, man. I mean, look, we're still in a democratic system, and I think that actual election campaigns matter. But I think that there are very good odds that whomever the Conservatives pick here is well positioned to take over as the prime minister. I agree with you on that. The thing I would say is like there's a reason why Pierre is probably going to win here and nobody else seems to have come even remotely close. And that's not that's not uh, failing to recognize that there's a lot of bad stuff going on right now. Conservatives exist. They're actually real. Yes, yes, unfortunately we they do. Yes. They live, they laugh, they love. When you prick them, they bleed. When you tickle them, they laugh. They represent a plurality of people in this country and a country that you are still living in. Yes, that is happening. Maybe you can help me because, Jen, I am skeptical and afraid, but I am also ignorant. I don't know how things work. I don't live in this culture, the conservative world in Canada. And maybe before we talk about what just happened with Patrick Brown, maybe the best use of my time with you today is to get like a guided tour through dirty trick land. Like, can you describe the world of dodgy Like, give me a, like a, paint me a, a landscape. How would you even begin it? This would be like shoehorning in your favorite candidate into a riding and kicking out someone who had actually tried to win the nomination legitimately. This would be spreading rumors about your opponent. It would be leaking stuff to the press about someone within your own party because you're trying to hurt a particular faction of that party. You know, some of the dirtiest stuff to come out about the UCP in Alberta that was published by far left press progress was actually leaked by conservative party operatives, right? (laughs) Because they were trying to get their own. So there's all kinds of stuff like that that goes on. I mean, it's so gross that Michelle Rempel said, I'm not going to run. I'm not going to be a part of this in Alberta. It's too gross. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It was straight up like, no, no o'clock. You guys are and also, like, they're just, there's just so many internal ideological factions within these parties, right? I mean, the Red Tories are different from the Libertarian Tories, are different from the Social Conservatives. I would say also, like, at this particular moment in history, there's quite a lot of acute sort of factionalization happening within the Conservative Party, as you have a Conservative Party that I'm not even sure, you know, under O'Toole, for example, was, was confident that it was going to stay together as a single unified party. So this particular moment of history, you have like the trends of Trump, you have sort of an emergent populism faction starting to emerge. You have a party that really lost its identity once Stephen Harper left. Mm -hmm. And then you have various sort of both regional and ideological factions at play. You have like the West versus the rest. This is not exclusive to conservative politics by any stretch, but it does seem to be like in this particular moment, there's, there's a bit of an acute flavor to it. Yeah, I would agree with that. As an outsider reading about this, I always read about Patrick Brown claims he has sold X number, 150,000 memberships, and and Pierre Polyev says that he's sold thousands of memberships from coast to coast. And I'm always like, why is there this suggestion that we should be skeptical of these numbers? Uh, Because the parties have to verify them. Okay, firstly, you have to make sure that the person buying the membership is connected to the credit card. You have to make sure that, you know, you didn't have any wonks or glitches going through the membership portals. Some people will, I think, still buy memberships by paper. So, like, there's a whole process of verification that has to happen. The reason why people were a little bit skeptical of this is because the numbers didn't really seem to add up. The actual number of conservative members 
seemed to more than quadruple or triple. And then when you added everybody's claimed memberships, it didn't quite add up to the total number of memberships that the Conservatives had. So was that a situation where you had pre-existing members re-signing up for a particular candidate without realizing their membership? You know what I mean? Like there's all kinds of just totally legitimate, complicated glitches. Are there illegitimate reasons why those numbers might be wrong? Yeah, potentially you could have uh, in leadership candidates claiming that they had signed up this huge or enormous number of members in order to intimidate other members within the uh, leadership race. And the reason why you would do that is that if you're Pierre Polyev and you're coming out and saying, I have 300,000 members signed up under my portal, you know, your clear message to the rest of the field and also to the conservative leadership electorate, the people who are actually doing the voting, is I'm going to win. You know, so like, like, don't bother backing another horse because I'm so far ahead of any other candidate that nobody else stands a hope. So you might as well back the winner. So there's also an element of PR for all of this as well. Is there a third reason to be suspicious? Is there any history of fake memberships being sold or any kind of fraud with memberships? I mean, you can go back from provincial politics to federal politics and find allegations, for example, of mass buying of memberships and people sort of mass buying, like they'll spend a hundred whatever thousand dollars on mass bought memberships and then they'll assign those memberships out to individual family groups. That will also sometimes happen, particularly within sort of close-knit communities, close-knit religious communities or close-knit ethnic communities where they can just be like, look, here's your membership, vote on the day kind of thing. So those groups are sometimes easier to organize. Certainly that has been issues in other types of parties and places. I mean, Alberta, for example, there was a leadership race here in Alberta for the Kenny leadership where there were all kinds of allegations of that kind of stuff going on. When people heard that Patrick Brown was getting thrown out of the party for ethics violations, I think some people assumed that it was going to be to do with the memberships. It turned out to be not to be the case. And I think if you go back and you look at Patrick Brown's history, there's a lot of allegations of him engaging in dirty tricks and all that kind of thing. And I'm, I'm not saying whether or not that's true or not. I'm saying there are allegations thereof. But Patrick Brown's real on the record reported on ethical violations were, were almost always about money. Mm-hmm. Right. Can we talk about that? Sure. So, for example, uh, I'll pull up a story here from 2018. I believe the Ontario Integrity Commissioner issued a report that found that Patrick Brown was in violation of, I think, four uh, major um, ethical violations. Essentially, the big one was that he had taken a $375,000 loan from a guy named Jazz Johol, who was a friend of his, but who was also a Tory candidate in Brampton. And he failed to disclose that essentially he had taken a very significant loan from a candidate, which raises all kinds of questions about, okay, wait a minute, Did, did you essentially buy the nomination was the question. That's why you have to disclose these things, right? He also failed to disclose significant rent, rental income as well. So the integrity commissioner was like, yeah, you can't, it's very obvious that you have to disclose these situations. And the integrity commissioner was pretty blunt about saying, you know, that there clearly was an attempt to sort of hide the fact that he had taken this loan. So that's a pretty significant integrity violation. And then, of course, in the wake of the disqualification from the CPC, you actually had a, a very underreported, actually, release from five Brampton councillors who are calling on a major forensic investigation from Brown's time as mayor of Brampton. Because apparently, they allege, they allege, they allege, they allege that essentially staff that Brown had hired at City Hall 
gave uh, $629,000 in contracts to a firm employed by one of Brown's closest political allies and close friends. And then everybody basically bailed out with them not being able to account for this money. There's also been allegations that Brown was running his leadership campaigns using City Hall staff, so using taxpayer staff to run his CPC leadership campaign. So like, I don't know whether or not these allegations are true or not. They have been publicly made by Brampton City Councilors, but if they are true, they would show a pretty clear pattern of behavior that would be in line with the allegations made against Brown that led to his disqualification from the CPC race, is what I would say. How can I say that any more carefully without getting sued for libel? <laughs> You're saying, though, what everybody is saying, which is like this guy has just been like one thing after the next. And of course, the sexual impropriety allegations that got him booted out of like being the next premier of Ontario. That happened as well. But I think we should probably go into the actual allegations that led to his disqualification. So this is a case where you had a fairly senior organizing volunteer named Deborah Joden. I um. I think I'm pronouncing that correctly, but essentially she has been working for various conservative campaigns for like 22 years. She gets involved in the Patrick Brown campaign. Essentially, according to her, a statement released via her lawyer, she says she agreed to take some kind of job where effectively she was being paid by a corporate entity. She thought that that was okay. As she's going about her work getting paid to work on this Patrick Brown campaign, she's she's noticing stuff like her campaign expenses and her campaign receipts are being reimbursed not by the Patrick Brown campaign official, but rather through, through this corporate entity. And that's when she starts to go, wait a minute, that's not normal, that's not right, which it isn't, it very clearly isn't. And that's when she decides apparently to go whistleblower. And if you do a quick look of, of Deborah Joden, I think you would find that she's pretty hard to paint as some kind of anti-Patrick Brown plant. She's one of these people who, according to her own social media campaign, went full truther during the sexual misconduct allegations. She was all pro-Patrick Brown. She's like, all of these are lying. She was like hardcore. And then she gets involved in the Patrick Brown campaign, takes this job, realizes that there's something off, goes whistleblower herself. And of course, now she's going to be demonized by the exact same people. Yeah. And I think it should be said here, like this has gotten a lot clearer from when it first broke. When it first broke, we had the Conservative Party not really telling us what evidence they had or who the whistleblower was or what the actual impropriety was. Just he's being unethical and we kicked him out. And that allowed him to say that he's been treated unfairly, that this is all coming from Pierre Polyev and Polyev supporters. And that like, hey, I've got thousands of volunteers. I don't know if one of them is like secretly paid by some other company. I knew nothing about this and I have I don't even know who you're talking about. And it looks like that at least allegedly is completely false because what Debbie Jodoin is saying is no. Patrick Brown absolutely knew that I was being paid by somebody else. I told him and he told me it was okay. Yeah. Also, if she was submitting expenses to the Patrick Brown campaign and then this corporate entity was paying off those expenses, there's no way that the CFO could have missed that. Which means if there was something of that nature going on, it's not just Patrick Brown who's implicated in it. There's a clear issue within his campaign as a whole. Okay, let me flip it. Maybe there is another perspective on this. God help me. What might Patrick Brown say? What is he saying? And what would he actually say if he, if he could speak perfectly candidly? Let me try this out for size, okay? I'll be Patrick Brown. I am absolutely different than the conservative establishment, whether it's in Ontario politics or federal. I am a different kind of conservative. I am trying to move conservative politics to the center or, you know, even beyond when it comes to everything from multiculturalism to a stance on Israel 
to uh, social conservative values, uh, social policies. We have conservative movement in Canada that is lost. It can't win. It fails again and again because it's not involving new Canadians and it's not involving diverse Canadians. And it is like got these weird hangover ties to the Christian right. And the Harper way of putting things together is failed and failed again. But I am a huge threat to the establishment and they are out to get me. And they are delegitimizing my thousands of supporters and disenfranchising them. And I don't really, this is the part where maybe he's had a drink or two and he's being candid. I haven't really done anything different than anybody else. What is this, an under $10,000 transgression? Like, if it was somebody they liked, they would have let me just pay it back. But they're out to get me, and the guy who runs this committee is a former Harper guy, and Polyev is a former Harper guy, and they want things to be the way that it was under Harper, and that means Trumpism, and that means freedom convoy, and that means losing. Okay, so you've, 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 you've massively lost the plot in the last, like, three seconds there. Tell me why. Patrick Brown has a couple of major political assets. Uh, his connections with non-traditional communities, both ethnic and sort of non-religious communities, is absolutely one. I don't think that anyone would deny that he has some very intense skills as an organizer. To some extent, the skills as an organizer rooted in his ability to find and develop real relationships with vote brokers, right? Like community vote brokers of various different communities and types. And I don't undermine that. That's that's a skill. Can I just ask you how he does that? Like, what is his connection to, to the Punjabi? Like, how does he make this happen? I don't know. I don't know enough about his personal connection to any particular community. But essentially, it is fairly well known that very often certain diaspora communities will vote in blocks. So you go to a local community broker and you develop sort of a relationship rapport or a tit for tat kind of agreement. And that broker will move their block for you. This is definitely a factor within um, major general elections, but this also becomes a major factor when you're talking about uh, leadership campaigns, where a block of two, three, four thousand, five thousand people could be like a third of your vote. So if you develop a relationship with one of these community sort of vote block dealers, you know, you only need a relationship with five or six of them. I mean, they used to call Jason Kenney the minister of Curry in a hurry for a reason, because effectively he was doing the same kind of thing. I'm just specifically curious about this one, because, like, you know, you see these videos of, like, Jagmeet Singh going into Brampton, and he's accosted by young Punjabi guys who are like, get the f*** out of here, you're a traitor. Hey, Jagmeet, don't sell out, bro, don't sell out. Sell out, thing, bro, you sold out a dome, bro. And this is like the Patrick Brown faithful. And then it gets reported because Jagmeet Singh says, oh, I've been targeted by threats and hate crimes. And it's like, well, something else is going on there. Raheem Muhammad did a great piece for us of the line and talked about diaspora politics and how increasingly it's becoming a factor in Canadian politics. And it's something we really need to understand better and pay more attention to. Diaspora politics um, is a is absolutely an extension of politics that already existed here. It's just uh, it's it's as more and more people come to live in Canada from other parts of the world and bring some of their tribal or ethnic affiliations with them. Diaspora politics are, are more of a, a matter that's just at play in terms of who gets to be leader and what kinds of people are really organizationally controlling certain writings. So Patrick Brown's appeal is, yes, absolutely, he does seem to have developed some really impressive ties with uh, non-traditional communities for the conservative base. They absolutely need to go into that. He is seen as politically moderate. He does seem to not particularly uh, kowtow to a social conservative base. Does that make him a threat within the conservative party? 
I think initially it made him very promising within the Conservative Party. The Conservative Party wants to bring in non-white members of the party. They recognize that that's a lot of where they have for many years recognized that that's where the future of conservatism is. It's not in, you know, rural Alberta white people. It's going to be in Brampton people of color. Well, they want the votes, but do they want to move policy-wise? Do they want to move social conservative policies? Don't assume that people of color are not socially conservative. And in fact, one of the things that Jason Kenney discovered way back in the day was that a lot of communities of color are actually more socially conservative than white communities. That's an excellent point. But Jen, let's not deny the fact that on a policy level, a lot of people look at like the choices that seem to be at hand, Doug Ford or Patrick Brown, and you go like, ugh. Like neither. Yeah. A lot of people could look at Pierre Polyev and, and Patrick Brown and go, ugh, I, I, like, I don't even care, neither. But if you actually look at what they want to do with huge amounts of money and with the law as legislators, there is a lot of space between what those do. Oh, yeah, 100%. That's, I wouldn't deny that. I would say, in general, the conservatives would look at someone like Patrick Brown and say, hey, man, you're shoring up a weakness that we have. Great. So he shouldn't be a threat to the party. However, where this gets really messy and and complicated is that Patrick Brown's sort of history of sexual misconduct, his ego, and also his approach to being called out for wrongdoing has effectively made him a lot of serious enemies within the party. It's not because of what he represents. It's because of the things that he's explicitly done. What about his policies? Does that make him enemies within the party? I think it makes him a representative of a certain faction within the party. But like, no, the Conservative Party has always been a pretty big tent party, right? Now, where this gets more complicated, as I would say, was with the ascendance of Pierre Polyev. With the rise of Pierre Polyev, what you are seeing right now is a kind of a reinvention and reformulation of the Conservative Party as an ascendant populist party. Mm-hmm. So it's less of a big tent party than it previously was. And you are seeing examples of sort of more moderate conservatives, Ed Fast, Michelle Rempel-Garner, those sorts of people getting essentially sidelined and kicked out of the party in order to run it as the Pierre show. You do have to pay attention to what's happening with the party as a whole. And one of the things that, I don't know, set a lot of alarm bells off within the Conservative Party ranks was that the vote to disqualify Patrick Brown was 11-6. How can we look at something like that and say, oh, that was not a political decision? Well, there you go. That becomes the question. Because if this was a slam dunk case of Patrick Brown doing something dodgy, then it should have been unanimous or pretty close to. The fact that it's 11-6, and from my understanding that 11-6 divided roughly along pro and anti-Pierre lines, makes people go like, wait a minute. And as Patrick Brown put it, is this the coronation of Pierre Polyev? But isn't that a little self-aggrandizing of Patrick Brown? Because Of course it is. Of course it is. But maybe it's also true. Maybe it's also true. Like, just looking at this from the outside, I, I just think about different times where it seems like same, same, but different things happened. Mm-hmm. Like, Maxime Bernier was, like, far and away the front runner to lead the Conservative Party. Mm-hmm. And, and he trounced Andrew Scheer at first ballot. But he didn't get 50%. It took 13 ballots. 13 ballots. And then, and people forget this part, on the 13th ballot, Scheer wins by like less than 1% of the votes. Mm -hmm. And then we learn that more than 1% of the votes have disappeared. 
And for a second, for a second, Maxime Bernier is making noises like he might ask for a recount or make a big stink. But then he's like holding up Shear's arm in victory and somebody talked to Bernier and came to some accommodation and Shear is the leader. And the difference for the voter between Andrew Shear and Maxime Bernier, that's like bigger than the difference between like certain political parties. So here's the interesting thing is that an extraordinary amount of work goes on behind the scenes to make sure that really bad candidates never get the chance to lead the party. These are private organizations. And as I read in the Toronto Sun of all places, the courts just don't get involved. No. Even if laws are broken, yeah. the, the courts don't get involved. Yeah. And the decisions that get made in these private organizations, these political parties, often make general elections like, like de facto processes. I don't want to overstate that. General elections still matter, and general elections are in this country are exceptionally clean and well-run. No, but you can have a clean general election between two candidates where the process that brought you one of those candidates was like a hidden cluster. Yes, absolutely. And like I said, this is where we get into the point where like all parties do this is as, as any recently deposed potential liberal nominee will tell you because like the leader decided that they wanted someone in that riding better, right? Like... Literally, yes, that's correct. So essentially, we operate in a system where these parties are private clubs. Mm -hmm. But what's happening right now is that you have a conservative party that is going into full-on fever dream bunker mode. That is what's happening. And do I think that it's possible that a party in full-on fever dream bunker mode could like hypothetically make some up in order to take out the second runner in a race? Yeah, of course that could happen. But my goodness, Patrick Brown is a bad, bad poster child for a victim complex, isn't he? If all of this is true, then the circumstance is like really concerning because essentially what you're describing is a Canada in which a viable option on the menu for voters between two types of conservatism, one that you would think Canada would be moving towards and the conservatives would have to move towards to be viable, a more inclusive conservatism, perhaps an environmentally more, more responsible conservatism, a conservatism that is not from the Christian right and the anti-abortion right, but is socially much more progressive, that that option is off the menu because of the failings of one individual. No, it isn't. Because firstly, if you want that kind of conservatism, and that would be great, by the way, you need to put it behind a poster child who's not as problematic and baggage ridden as Patrick Brown. That's what I just said. Secondly, if that's what you want, you'll vote for Sheree. Sheree seems like a non-starter to me in Quebec, seems like a non-starter to me with multicultural Canada. We call him Sheree Bring Out Your Dead for a reason. He's yesterday's man. But I'm saying, like, there is a credible red Tory conservative here for people to rally around. The reason why they won't is because that's not actually what the Conservative Party wants right now. The Conservative Party, for better or worse, wants the Pierre. That's just what it is. So when they elect him and when they make him prime minister, you'll know who to blame. That is your Canada land. You can email me at jesse at canadaland.com. I read everything you send. We're on Twitter at CanadaLand. Our website is canadaland.com. This episode was produced with help from Jonathan Goldsby and Cherie Sutrin. Tristan Capicone is our audio editor and our technical producer. Our senior producer is Sarah Larniuk. Kieran Oudshorn is our managing editor. I am your host, Jesse Brown. Our theme music is by so-called syndications handled by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. Visit them online at cfuv.ca. 
Hi there. You just heard Canada Land, the show where I'm typically joined by a different guest each week for a long feature interview. What you're going to hear next is Canada Land Shortcuts, a topical news show where I'm joined by a different co-host each week and we talk about the media's coverage of various stories in the news right now. Wait for it. It's been too long, Jan Wong. Yeah, long time. Missed you dearly. Likewise, journalist, author, teacher Jan Wong. Today we're going to be talking about the Supreme Court. They have delivered a landmark ruling that will impact the rights of women. And I, for one, support it. I'm talking about Canada's, Canada's Supreme Court, Jan. Yeah, not that U.S. Oh, my God. We won't talk about them. Thank goodness. Also today... The National Post calls for an end to the verbal abuse of media workers. Meanwhile, National Post columnists Rex Murphy and National Post founder Conrad Black call the media stupid, vile, corrupt, and worthy of hatred. Their next Christmas party at Post Media is going to be a lot of fun. (laughs) Welcome back to Shortcuts, where we talk about the news. So, Jan, while everybody was, I think, quite reasonably fixated on the U.S. Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, our Supreme Court here in Canada issued an important ruling that has gone not totally overlooked, but largely overlooked. And that ruling was the Supreme Court of Canada upholding the so-called Gomeshi laws or Gomeshi amendments. And these are expanded rape shield laws first introduced by then Justice Minister Jody Wilson-Raybould in 2017. And as you and listeners will remember, the reason why those laws were introduced was because this happened. Gian Gomeshi is not guilty on all charges of sexual assault. And the women would be discredited, denounced by the judge as deceptive, manipulative, deliberately breaching their responsibility to tell the truth. Decouter was the second witness, and her credibility was arguably the most damaged by the end of her testimony. There's probably a witness somewhere in a criminal proceeding, somewhere in the world, who has been more thoroughly discredited than Lucy Decouter, who is the second complainant in the Jean Gameshi sex trial. So there's probably someone like that somewhere, and I just don't know about it. So, Jan, that's a story that a lot of listeners are going to remember hearing from the media, a story of a dramatic courtroom drama in which, like Lucy de Couture and, and the other complainants, went from being, I think, treated very positively in the press as heroes, as very brave women who were coming forward when the, when the police asked them to come forward after other women were accusing Gameshi of brutal uh, sexual assault and, and violence. These women went from being celebrated to being excoriated. Everyone in the country heard they were demolished on the stand by Gameshi's lawyer, Marie Hanen. They were excoriated by the judge in his ruling for not telling the truth. And then I, I think they were demonized by many media commentators, including the late Christy Blatchford. So I think that that's where a lot of people left the story, because it was like the biggest story in Canada at the time. And it was the story of, of discredited witnesses, bad witnesses. I felt so bad when that verdict came down. You're right. There was this huge support for the women. And then basically everybody shook their heads and said, oh, well, you know, obviously they were not credible. That was terrible. That setback sexual assault complainants coming forward 
it's already so hard to bring a complaint and that just wiped it. So this news is really, really good. Very important. It is, but it's really interesting how the biggest story in Canada has a different ending than the one that everybody thinks it had. You know, the ending of the story is not about witnesses who are discredited. It's interesting that we're calling this the Gomeshi Amendment or the Gomeshi Laws, or that's how it's been referred because, like, you could call it, like, Lucy's Law. Yeah. What the country saw, as told through the media, that they were ruined on the stage and they were dishonest, is not what, I guess, legislators saw. It's not what Jody Wilson-Raybould saw. And now it's not what the courts see. What they saw was, like, a failure of the justice system itself. So what these so-called Gomeshi Amendments entail is amendments to the criminal code extending the rape shield law so that if a person accused of sexual assault, their defense lawyer wants to bring forward, let's say, records like texts that show that the alleged victim was in touch with the alleged perpetrator after the fact, they have to say, I want to bring this evidence out at trial. And there's a pre-screening process where the court considers that. And if those records are considered to be an invasion of the accuser's dignity and privacy that doesn't actually have much value for determining the truth of what happened, then the court can say, no, you cannot admit those. Yes, and and I, I agree that this ruling hasn't got nearly the attention of Roe v. Wade in the U.S., but this is so important because what it does is it slightly takes the finger off the scale to give the accused all the rights and the complainants, the alleged victims, had no rights. Before, there was a rape shield law which said you could not bring up the prior sexual history of the complainant in a court of law. And in Gomeshi's trial, what they did, and in other trials, is they used any social media accounts, any emails they sent, any photos, they used it against the complainants. But not only did they use it, they ambushed them. So the complainants had no right to know what Gomeshi's lawyer had. And so that's how these women were destroyed on the stand. If they had been in the normal pretrial process where they are shown what the other side has, they would have known. So, for instance, one of them said, no, I didn't contact him after the assault. Who knows why the person said this, but a lot of people feel like if they want to be a credible victim, they have to fit the stereotype, the myth that if you've been sexually assaulted, you never have contact again, you know, but that's not true. In the real world, a lot of people want to normalize what happened or the other person has power or who knows why, or they have, they share a kid in common, you know, but we have so many myths about sexual assault I think the justices blew up five myths in their ruling. One of the myths is a sexually active woman is more likely to have consented or to lie, right? This is this old myth about women who like sex. They're bad people. Mental health challenges also destroys your credibility that if you just consumed alcohol or took drugs, you're also not reliable. That if you didn't report it immediately, this is probably it didn't happen. And that if you had any contact with the perpetrator, the alleged perpetrator after the assault, then you're not a real victim. So this is why this Supreme Court ruling in Canada is is really important, because the whole atmosphere has changed because of social media. People normally just send texts and emails. 
you know, and you can't recover it. It's just really important that they included this and, and they won't let the accused ambush the complainants with this. This is an extension of rape shield laws. There was already rape shield law that made it difficult, not impossible, to bring accusers' sexual history as evidence against them. It made it difficult to access a doctor's files on the yeah. on the victim or a rape crisis center. So that was already protected. And the difference is, let's just use the actual example. Gion Gameshi had photos, videos, you know, somebody sent him, I think, a bathing suit picture. Another one sent him flowers afterwards. This is actually normal behavior for victims of sexual assault. We don't know this because we try to shove women into this stereotype of the only way you could be really raped is if someone clubbed you on the head and dragged you into a dark alley. This is not the majority of cases of sexual assault. Most of the time, the women know the perpetrator. The specific things that women and other accusers have now that they didn't have before this law, and now that this law is constitutionally protected because the Supreme Court says it's constitutional, what would happen now if the Gameshi trial were to be held today is rather than ambush women on the stand after they've, you know, that like Bill Blair said, hey, come forward, tell us your stories, you can trust us, we're the police, we're your friends. The women came forward and they just sort of told the story as they had remembered it after many years. And then on the stand, Marie Hanen is like, you said you never contacted him, what about this? Now, if that trial were to happen today because of the Gameshi amendments, if Marie Hanen wants to introduce that as evidence, she has to then give the accuser, there's a pre-screening process where she says, I want to be able to bring up these text messages. And not only does she have to give warning that that's going to be entered into evidence, but now accusers can actually have lawyers. And a lot of people don't realize this, but none of those women had lawyers that had any standing. Absolutely. It's true that they did not have lawyers at trial. They did not have lawyers who were recognized by the court or who could advocate them or would be recognized by the court. They had lawyers giving them advice. And in fact, that ended up hurting them because two of the accusers had the same lawyer and Marie Hanen weaponized that and said, isn't it true that you both have the same lawyer? And I think the implication was that there's something dirty about that, that they're colluding, they're part of the campaign. So the fact that they had any representation, even though it wasn't officially recognized, was actually something that hurt them in that trial as opposed to help them. Absolutely. So now the accuser can say, that is an affront to my dignity. It has nothing to do with the alleged assault. It doesn't prove anything that I came back afterwards and was nice to him. And it's an evasion of my privacy. And the court can say, no, actually, it does actually matter. Or they could say, no, that is a, an affront to your dignity. And I think that it was absolutely devastating to these women's dignity to show bikini pictures and whatnot. The funny thing is that as many people in Canada concluded that Christy Blashford was right, these witnesses are horrible liars or whatever, they also felt that they probably were assaulted by Gameshi. Like those yes. concurrent positions were, were held, which was weird. And that's what's so terrible about it. I think people accepted that they were credible in that he did assault them, but then they said, oh, but you lied, so you're going to get punished by we're not going to convict him. The, the new ruling by the Supreme Court says that any evidence that the defense has has to be brought out in a private hearing, not in court, in a private hearing, mm -hmm. and the victims have the right to attend this with lawyers. Yes, you're right. The victims in the Gomeshi case were just there as, you know, victims. They had no rights and they had no lawyers. And so this is just beginning to address the huge imbalance. I mean, we really believe in a democracy 
of the right of an accused to a fair trial. That is very important. But in the case of sexual assault, it is so out of whack. It is laughable. And that's why the conviction rate is so low. I mean, essentially, you can you can sexually assault someone in this country and get away with it. Your chances of getting convicted are almost nil. Yeah, that's what Elizabeth Sheehy wrote in The Globe and Mail. This whole idea that everything's changed since Me Too. Sexual assault, Sheehy writes, is still a crime that is like almost without consequence to commit. That's that's still the, the case. Yeah, and it's the only crime. It's the only crime that we've allowed, which shows you how misogynist the laws have been. It's basically the only crime. You can't do that with bank robbery. You can't do that, you know, with uh, killing someone with your car. But yeah, you can sexually assault and you can get away with it. And now this is just beginning to redress this imbalance in the court. It is gratifying because to see what happened in that trial. And again, like it really does feel like it's a direct result of that trial. If you read the ruling, it's not simply about the affront to the dignity. It's about setting traps. Yes. Why is that beneficial to the search for the truth? I guess in in what we saw play out and in many trials, it's like, well, you gave one version of, of events and now these texts prove that what happened is a little bit different. Obviously, you're a liar and we can't trust anything you say. Now, one of the myths, you know, in addition to the, you know, whatever somebody's sexual history doesn't make them more or less credible in terms of an assault allegation, we now know that that is very common with abuse for people to come back. And it's also common for people to misremember things. And I'll read from the ruling here. There is surely nothing wrong in a witness refreshing his or her memory from a previous statement or document. The witness may even change his or her evidence as a result. This may rob the cross-examiner of a substantial advantage, but fairness to the witness may require that a trap not be laid. And the ruling goes on to say, it's not about letting somebody change their story. It's about somebody has a memory of something that happened in an intimate moment and that was traumatic. And then you say, but there's more to it or it's a little bit different than what you remember. And then they have an opportunity to say, you know what, you're right. I I blocked out the fact that I sent that. And it's not necessarily the case that they're caught in a lie. Exactly. If the point is to actually figure out what happened, and most people feel like what happened is this guy got away with assault, then this is actually a better system for arriving at the truth. It's not just about giving more power to accusers. It's about like we're trying to get to the truth here. The justices also said that, quote, providing advance notice to complainants that they may be confronted with highly private information is likely, and here's the important part, is likely to enhance their ability to participate honestly in cross-examination. And if you want to get to the truth, if you want people to be honest, you cannot blindside them like this. Because I agree, trauma does affect your memory and so do the stereotypes. I don't know, maybe they were under pressure. I mean, it's embarrassing to say that you sent somebody flowers after they did this to you, but it's totally conforming with the behavior of victims after a sexual assault. And we have just made so many myths around this. Yeah. To watch that play out as it did, as I did, and I, I shouldn't make assumptions, you know, I, I have a role in the story that should be disclosed here in, in reporting the Gameshi story. That's right. I forgot you broke the story. I so totally forgot. I knew that this was a methodical serial predator. He repeatedly manipulated his victims into post-incident contact and would remind them, I have these photos of you. I have these solicitations of you. I have evidence that you wanted this. That was his M.O., 
And he would often, especially if there was a situation where somebody was parting with him with, with allegations or on bad terms, he would work overtime to make sure that there was friendly contact mm. afterwards. And then he would keep records mm. for years and yeah. years. So watching those women get whacked with that on the stand and then excoriated by the judge, excoriated by Christy Blatchford, excoriated. And for that to be the story, I hope they feel, I hope that Linda and Lucy feel proud of what they did in the long run and at a great personal cost. Like this should not be called the Gameshi law. This is Lucy and Linda's law. They took one for the team and all women should thank them. All victims, I shouldn't say only women, all, all victims of sexual assault yeah. should thank them. It's sad, but it's it's also very good news. I, I'm very sad for them, but I'm also very happy for this Supreme Court. And I'm really happy that I live in Canada, <laughs> not the U.S. <laughs> Sometimes I agree. And, and I should say that there are right now criminal defense lawyers listening to this who have been complaining for years about this law that Jody Wilson-Raybould introduced, that, that it's not fair, it's not constitutional, that it's unfair, it's going to lead to wrongful convictions. Matthew Gourlay is in the Globe and Mail with a, another author writing about how terrible this is. They, they've been complaining for years about this, and that's a debate that lawyers can have in a more informed way than I can. But now the debate is settled. The Supreme Court has weighed in. I don't think she would have won. With this law, she would not have won because that's what destroyed the credibility, the quote-unquote credibility of the complainants. She wasn't wrong. Marie Hennon used what she could use, and she did an, an amazing job getting Gomeshi off because everybody knew, right? You just knew. Yeah. And she got him off. But in the future, she won't be able to. So no wonder all the defense lawyers are complaining. Well, that's how it happens. And thank goodness the Supreme Court. It was only 6-3. It wasn't unanimous. So, you know, we're lucky. Jan, let's duly note some stuff. Do you have something you want to tell people about? Yes. I want to talk about Watergate. Which kind of gossip do you want? Pulitzer Prize gossip? Or do you want my personal encounter with Woodward at the Smithsonian? Oh, the personal encounter for sure. Let's hear the Woodward goss. So there's a Watergate exhibit at the Smithsonian Portrait Gallery. It's mainly original art covers of Time magazine. They had so many covers of Watergate and big selling magazines, most they ever sold. So I'm at the exhibit and I'm trying to concentrate and read the little, you know, cards. And there's this guy at the beginning of the exhibit. I'm already halfway through it. And he's so loud. He's talking. He's almost shouting. He goes from cover to cover and he wants to give the whole world his opinion. And I'm glaring at him and he's really annoying me. And at one point I decide I'm going to stomp over and tell him off and tell him he's not the only. So I would stomp over <laughs> and at a distance of 10 feet, I go, oh my God, <laughs> it's Woodward. And so then I immediately become a groupie. I just become a groupie and I just follow him. He's got like six people following him around this. So, and I think I, and I did talk to him afterwards. <laughs> so that's my Woodward story. You know, Michael Enright told me that, that those two ruined journalism because everybody wanted to be a superstar like Woodward and Bernstein after that movie. Yeah. So do I have time to tell you the other gossip about the Woodward Bernstein Pulitzer Prize? I think you have to now. So I'm reading this amazing book. I finished it, 793 pages. It's called Watergate, A New History by Garrett Graff. And it's just come out. And it's, it's really interesting to read it as I'm watching the January 6th hearings. 
But here's the gossip on the Pulitzers. Everyone knows they won the Pulitzer Prize, right? Sure. Woodward and Bernstein. That's why we all wanted to go into journalism. It turns out that they weren't going to win it, that the Washington Post was overlooked. So the big machine at the Washington Post swung into action and they started horse trading with the Pulitzer Prize Committee. And they said, no, 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 we have to get this. Uh, and we want the, the gold medal for public service, which is interestingly, not individual reporters. It went to the newspaper. But as a result of the horse trading, two Washington Post reporters lost their Pulitzers. Somebody was supposed to get it for foreign reporting and somebody was supposed to get it for spot news. And of course, they didn't get it. So Woodward and Bernstein get it, but they're mad because they didn't get it as individual reporters. The newspaper got it, including a cartoonist and an editorial writer. So I just thought that was, that was really interesting, but only journalists would care. They had to wheel and deal to get that Pulitzer Prize, even though it was really good work, right? But they weren't going to get it that year. I have endless appetite for, like, award gossip. Yeah. We got to do a thing on... Yeah, you should, yeah. I mean, we want media awards, and but, like, the actual backstory behind what happens... I didn't know that the, the Pulitzers were manipulatable. No, I didn't either. I was, like, shocked. You know, The Wire got into this a little bit, but the way in which editors, like start out with an intention of like, this is going to be our big mm -hmm, award play mm -hmm. for this year. And stor like stories are born as award bait. Yes, yes, yes. It's no different than like what the wine yes, scenes did with yes. the Oscars. And they lobby for it. I didn't realize you could lobby for it. Yeah. I and I didn't realize you horse traded the Pulitzers. <laughs> no, that's news to me. That is good gossip. Duly noted. Here is Jan Wong, an article written by Rob Roberts, the editor-in-chief of the National Post disagree all you like with us, but engage us. Don't abuse us. And Rob Roberts goes on to write, and this is something that we've talked about many times and I think is very real, that this is a hard time for journalists. There's a lot of harassment and abuse that just for doing the job of journalism, you've got to encounter. And that even goes for the National Post's reporters from a conservative newspaper. They still face a lot of, a lot of attacks. And Rob Roberts writes, these are hard times for almost everyone, something we try to capture in our journalism. But let me condemn, in the strongest possible terms, the people who think that that gives them permission to do away with decency. I'm writing today to tell those people to stop. We stand with our journalists. Disagree all you like, but don't abuse us. Well, that'll do a lot of good. I think that'll really be helpful. <laughs> Jan, I want to play you a little bit of audio of Rex Murphy delivering a speech at a Freedom Gala last month. The news media of this country and North America is not only mendacious, it is incompetent, it is compromised, it is corrupt, it is illiterate, it is stupid, and it is vile. <laughs> That's a lot of words for bad. Yeah. I want to now play you National Post founder and columnist Conrad Black delivering a speech presented by the Democracy Fund on the History of Civil Liberties in Canada. This was posted also last month. Almost all distinction between reporting and comment has been abandoned in our media. And what passes for news more often is simply the leftist philistinism of unrigorous reporters peddling faddish bile free of any pretense of impartiality. Usually it isn't very well written or spoken either. 
as objective tests of our secondary school graduates reveal steadily lower standards of achievement, so public opinion polling indicates that a steadily smaller percentage of the public trusts the media. Our media are so chronically mediocre and frequently dishonest that what should be in a rich and free country like this, the civil right to a reasonably high standard of media information is a general denial of that right. Lord Black of Cross Harbor went on to say, the public is right to distrust and even despise the media. I hope they all work it out. Rob Roberts writing this letter to <laughs> Conrad Black and Rex Murphy in public. Please stop abusing us. No, I, I don't even know where to begin with the contradictions and hypocrisies at play here. What, what, like, what's, what's your reaction to this? Well, first of all, is he still Lord Black? I thought he got stripped of his title. But anyway, he's complaining about the distinction between reporting and commentary. I don't think he understands it himself. And calling journalists all these names, I don't know. They, they sound like they work for a thesaurus. Tell us what they really think. I guess they don't like reporters, but they, they work as reporters. It's so weird. And seeing how Rex Murphy has evolved is weird, if you want to call it evolve. I, I think he went backwards. And then the National Post doesn't want anyone to treat their journalists badly. When these two guys are trashing journalists, I guess it's ultimate hypocrisy, right? In so many ways. We always just throw around the media, this, the media, that, like, who is the media? I guess it's the cumulative, like, everybody who works in media altogether. Like, no one is the media. But if anyone is the media, Conrad Black is the media. Rex Murphy is the media. Yeah, they're the media. You know, the National Post is the media that publishes Rex Murphy's column. So what are they complaining about? They have a platform. What are they complaining about? And then the lack of self-reflection or like introspection or just like, okay, no, they don't see themselves as that somehow. They see themselves as other, but they are working. I know it's kind of an open secret that nobody really edits them. And they just basically treat the pages of the National Post as like their Twitter account or their personal blog. But they do have colleagues who are like laying out these articles, formatting yeah. them, publishing yeah. them. And you're saying it's right to hate those people. It's okay to, you should hate those people. That's right. And, and, and it's not even like I'm drawing that back to Conrad Black's own colleagues. He makes that, that connection. He says, I should know what I'm talking about when I, when I excoriate the media, I've employed enough of them myself. He, he makes the connection that he's talking about posties and you got to wonder, like, what does the union think about this to have the, the star columnists, whatever these like guys, they're crusty, they're old, they're out of touch, but their names trend on Twitter whenever they write another piece. They're like the last. Yeah, but the union doesn't say anything, right? The union is afraid. Well, it would have been really great if there's Rob Roberts. I love people with these reversible names. It would have been really good if he had called out Rex Murphy and Conrad Black. He would have had some credibility. Right now, I'm just you know, big eye roll. Yeah. It's not going to make any difference. But if he wanted to get attention, he should have called out Rex Murphy. Well, he was explicit in his piece about who he was talking about. Like, I'm being cheeky and saying it sounds like he's describing Conrad Black and Rex Murphy. In fact, of course, who he cites, Rob Roberts, is a bunch of online commentators who are making death threats or saying vile things. But there is nothing incompatible in that the kind of vile comments that Rob Roberts cites from post-readers 
it's completely compatible with what Rex Murphy and Connor Black are saying. Exactly. And it's coming from the same political point of view. Like it's, they're on the same team against everybody else, I suppose, the National Post. To this question of what the union has to say about this, well, our news editor, Jonathan Goldsby, tweeted the clip of Rex Murphy. And a few days later, a representative of the National Post Union got in touch with him to say, can we see the video of the full speech? Oh. Because they were considering putting out a statement about these comments. Uh-huh. And they wanted to see the full context of the remarks. So he shared the live stream of the full event. He asked them, you know, if, if you do a statement, can you let me know? And? and we haven't heard anything more about it since. Ha! What do you know? Am I surprised? Are you surprised? I'm not. No. I'm not surprised. No. Nobody has any courage. Rob Roberts should have posted a link to Rex Murphy. It would have, he would have had some courage. It's not courageous in your own newspaper to say online harassment, blah, 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 please don't do it. Go after your own powerful people that are doing this. In fact, it's kind of weird to, to read this open letter from an editor-in-chief, like kind of just directed to the public at large, that's like, hey, we're doing our best. Don't be mean to us. Don't abuse us. Like in any context, it's kind of weird. Like, and I guess we're supposed to self-select. Well, he's not He's not talking about me. He's talking about those other people who, you know, yes, I, I talk a lot of shit about National Post reporters, but I'm not abusive. He's talking about those horrible trolls, not me. Uh, that's always kind of a weird thing to kind of like, criticize your own readership or criticize the public, but to do so in, in, and have in your blind spot, your biggest celebrity columnists. Can I ask you about the whole celebrity columnist thing? Cause like you were there during the newspaper wars when yeah. building up these columnists and, and, and even having columnists slash reporters as you were mm -hmm. was like, let's build personalities and let's build subscription and readership based on readers connections with these personalities. And, and there was a time when it wasn't just Conrad Black and Rex Murphy, but Margaret Wente could have everybody buzzing and Leah McLaren could have everybody talking about what she just wrote and you could write something that would have everybody talking and Christy Blatchford. And it just seems like those roles have been phased out and no one's bothered to replace them or to try to cultivate. Maybe for better, maybe it's a good thing. Yeah, I don't know. These are the guys we have left, you know? Yeah, the old crusty guys. I don't know why, but... I just feel the post editor, Rob Roberts, shouldn't have even bothered. If you're gonna put out pablum and anodyne commentary and you're not gonna name anybody, then don't bother. You just look weak if you're not gonna take your own people to a task. I didn't even know Conrad Black and Rex Murphy are like still showing up in places. I guess I'm out of it. Like, really? What are they doing? Why don't they just retire and go home and shut up? The call, as we say on the internet, was coming from inside the house. <laughs> oh. Jan Wong, thank you for joining me again for Shortcuts. It's so much fun. It's always fun when you're on this show. And if anybody out there likes this show and wants to support all the work we do here, click the link on the show notes or go to canadaland.com join. We rely on your support. We are on Twitter at CanadaLand. I can be emailed at jesse at CanadaLand.com. I read everything that you send. Jen Wong, where can people find you? I am at Writer Wong on Twitter. Get it? It's a pun. Right or wrong? Yeah. Good. I got it. I got it because you explained it to me last time. <laughs> this episode is produced by Aviva Lassard with additional production by Caleb Thompson and Tristan Capicione. Our managing editor is Kieran Oudshorn. 
Our theme music is by So Called. Syndication is handled by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. You can visit them online at cfuv.ca. Thank you.